Welcome to the Emotional Curriculum with me, Dr. Sarah Taylor-Whiteway. Historically, we may have thought that children with autism didn't want friends or didn't want to socialise, but our understanding has come a long way since then. In this episode, we talk to Anna Cook, a teaching fellow from the University of Surrey. We explore the desires of children with autism to have social relationships, masking, how spending time with neurotypical children can have a positive impact, and what schools can do to support this. Anna, welcome to the Emotional Curriculum. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to spend some time talking about your research into the social relationships of children with autism. Could you start by telling us what got you interested in this area? I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm a teaching fellow in developmental psychology at the University of Surrey. Um, And I have about 20 years of previous experience working in the education sector. But it was a personal interest in autism that arose through having two children on the autistic spectrum. And since their diagnoses, I became particularly interested in their challenges um, and the impact that these have on their lives. Uh, My son had greater challenges when he was very young, sort of relating to his speech and language and sensory sensitivities. But when they started school, additional social challenges emerged, which seemed at times to be related to differences in their social understanding and um, also the lack of understanding from others as well. So when I decided to return to university to Uh, study for my master's and then my PhD, um, a focus on autism and inclusion and social relationships for my doctoral thesis was the obvious choice. And so what do we know already about the social relationships of children with autism? So uh, recent research has indicated that sort of in contrast to the beliefs of some that autistic individuals have a, a sort of a basic desire to be alone, such as some of, you know, some of the early psychologists like Leo Kanner back in the 1940s, um, autistic children do in fact have a social desire for relationships. Some studies report that they have fewer friendships and shorter durations of friendship, but these also report similarities uh, with typically developing children in terms of the types of activities that they like to engage in during their social interactions. So whether it's video games or watching television, for example. So in 2014, there was a review of studies about the the characteristics of friendships uh, for autistic children. And this found that friendship quality, so things like companionship, closeness, um, security, um, was reported to be lower than their neurotypical peers. The authors argued that this could be a result of um, perceptions of friendship being different for autistic people, and there may be sort of different expectations and priorities. But most of the existing research into peer relationships for autistic children has focused more on acceptance and, and rejection by their peers. And these studies show that autistic children are less accepted than their typically developing peers. And a a really useful model for this was provided by uh, Neil Humphrey and Wendy Symes. And this attempted to sort of increase our understanding as to why this might be and what all these different 
interrelating factors might be. So the model proposes that social outcomes are caused by two related factors. The first one being problems in social cognition, leading to sort of social skills difficulties. And the second one being the lack of understanding by their peers, which leads to reduced acceptance, you know, particularly of some of the behaviours associated with ASD. So they suggested that this combination of the two factors results in this sort of reduced quality and frequency of peer interaction, uh, which in turn leads to increased bullying and rejection. Um, and this creates a vicious cycle. So um, autistic pupils have reduced motivation to make social contact and neurotypical peers have reduced opportunities to learn about ASD. So it has this sort of reciprocal effect. It's really interesting because I think that narrative that children with autism don't want friends, it still proliferates. And actually what you're saying is the research is saying quite the opposite and that actually they do want relationships and that how other young people are behaving is impacting on them and the quality of those relationships. Yeah, absolutely. So studies have indicated that autistic children are often stigmatised and this sort of really makes them vulnerable to peer rejection and bullying in school and especially in uh, mainstream school settings. So there are high levels of bullying reported of children on the autistic spectrum and and often more so than children with um, other special educational needs and uh, neurodevelopmental conditions. So according to the Department for Education, um, 40% of children with ASD are bullied at school and it has been suggested that sort of many of those characteristics that are considered to be causative factors of bullying are also typical of autistic children so for example communication difficulties different social behaviors and their social status etc so uh, these difficulties are likely to increase their exposure and vulnerability to bullying and this is particularly problematic as it can lead to a number of serious long-term outcomes such as anxiety depression low self-esteem, school avoidance. So yeah, it is a, a real problem that desperately needs to be addressed. You mentioned the impact on self-esteem and I think there's a lot of discussion about lots of different things associated with autism at the moment. One of them being mental health and the comorbidity with autism and another being autism in girls. Yeah, so you're right. This is a really sort of emerging area in research. Um, What's interesting is that the male to female ratio um, is about four or five to one. So um, and the reason for this gender imbalance um, is not really yet known, but it might be due to the under identification of females. So they often have less marked autistic behaviours. But unfortunately, this has led to females being underrepresented in research. But recently, there have been some really interesting findings related to friendships. So studies have shown that despite having fewer social deficits, girls generally have a high motivation for friendships, but find it harder to maintain long term friendships or to deal with conflict compared to non-autistic girls or indeed compared to autistic boys. So um, our interviews with girls showed that they were motivated to have friends, albeit with a a different perception of friendship, but often encountered social difficulties and were sometimes targeted for bullying. And in particular, the girls in mainstream settings were more likely to be bullied and also report this tendency to mask their autism to try to fit in with their peers. You mentioned masking there. Can you explain a little bit more about what that is? 
Yes, absolutely. This is a really growing field in autism research, exploring the tendency of autistic girls to mask their differences, to, to try to fit in. Um, and this might be through hiding aspects of their autism or copying behaviours of their typically developing peers. Um, it's sometimes referred to as camouflaging. So um, this means that sort of by mimicking social behaviours, they can reduce the appearance of their autistic traits to make themselves more desirable to their peers. And many recent authors have suggested that this might account for the underdiagnosis of girls compared to boys. And so studies are also finding that camouflaging is emotionally taxing and can um, impact self-esteem. So that really suggests that we need to work on how society accepts autism. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. This is sort of the main goal of of my area of research. Yeah. Your research has looked into lots of different areas, but one of the areas that I found really interesting was music and how this can be really helpful for children with autism. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. So there are many benefits of music for children on the autistic spectrum, including things like processing of emotions and encouraging interaction. So one study found that um, autistic people experience emotional arousal from music, from listening to music, um, but have difficulties verbalising their emotional states. So music therapy is used to help autistic children to communicate or to improve their coordination or build you know, relationships and also improve mental health. But one aspect of music that I'm particularly interested in um, and that I've utilised in my research um, is how it can facilitate social cohesion. So music making is inherently social and can develop a real sense of synchrony between people. And I have personal experience of this through singing in a choir. And it does this through the use of pitch and pulse to um, lead to synchronous motor movements. So things like singing and dancing. And this has been found to weaken boundaries between people um, and leads to feelings of collective cohesion um, and greater cooperative behaviours. And these behaviours, together with things like empathy, have been found in studies designed specifically to promote these positive interactions through music making. You spoke there about how music can bring people together and one of the key theories of your work is the contact hypothesis. Could you explain that to us? Yeah, so definitely. So with this view in mind that the experience for children on the autistic spectrum in schools is very much influenced by their peers, I started looking at what psychology could tell us about the differences um, between understanding of different groups and people from different backgrounds and so on. So psychology tells us that um, society has distinct social groups uh, with particular social categories that provide members with their social identity. And we try to differentiate ourselves from other groups to enhance our own group status and reduce uncertainty. And and this is the basis of social identity theory. So where there's uncertainty, members can become intolerant of other groups. And sometimes this can lead to stereotypes and prejudice. And the more they identify with their group, the more biased they are. So for example, if we identify with categories such as sporty, sociable, or even neurotypical, Uh, To reduce uncertainty, we may try to differentiate ourselves as far as possible from people who are not sporty or not sociable or atypical, such as those on the autistic spectrum. But it has been shown that positive contact between groups can promote positive attitudes and, and reduce this discrimination. So the contact hypothesis, which I've based most of my research around, was um, proposed by Gordon Allport in the 1950s. And it proposes that 
prejudice arises from a lack of knowledge and familiarity, but that under certain conditions, prejudice can be reduced. So conditions like having equal status between the groups, a common goal to work towards, uh, intergroup cooperation and support from authorities or teachers in the case of schools and personal interaction. So one study did find that children in New Zealand in sort of inclusive, high contact mainstream settings were more positive towards their peers with uh, disabilities than those in less integrating settings. And then more relating to autism, there was a study in Greece that measured the knowledge and attitudes towards autism um, of children in school settings where there was high contact compared to those with no contact. And again, the findings showed that those in the high contact group had greater knowledge and more positive attitudes and positive behavioural intentions as well towards their autistic peers than the children who had no contact. So actually what this is saying is that if we work on bringing together neurotypical children and children with autism, we might overcome some of those negative interactions or the kind of rates of bullying that you spoke about before. And this has quite big implications for inclusion, doesn't it? Yes, there needs to be particular ways forward to ensure that, you know, proper inclusion of that child through changing the environment or um, introducing ways that peers can be taught how to um, interact and how to understand the, the challenges and the differences. So what did you set out to explore with your studies? My colleagues at Surrey and I wanted to really explore the experiences of peer relationships for autistic adolescents in different school settings with this idea of of inclusion in mind. Really, what were those differences in the kinds of friendships and experiences of bullying that they were having in a mainstream school setting compared to a special school setting? And secondly, to um, think about how contact and different kinds of contact might improve attitudes towards autism. So we had a number of different qualitative studies to begin with, where we interviewed teenage boys and girls on the autistic spectrum, attending both mainstream and special schools. And we also interviewed their parents and teachers as well. And the interviews asked about their experiences of friendship and bullying. Um, But despite asking the same questions to the boys and the girls, these revealed quite different themes um, from the boys and girls. So the boys, many of them had experienced bullying and mainly within the mainstream schools. And these included verbal and physical bullying, theft, vandalism and quite a lot of frequent goading, you know, that more sort of subtle bullying where, you know, it might just be the tapping of a pencil or, you know, something that really raises those sensory sensitivities. And many had suffered mental health problems like stress or low self-esteem, depression and even suicidal thoughts. But a number of protective factors, things like self-esteem, resilience, friendships and achievements actually buffered them. So buffered against these difficulties such as the social and sensory challenges or the lack of understanding of others. And then with the girls, as I've already mentioned, many reported that they wanted to have friends, um, but many factors held them back, such as having different expectations of friendships, difficulties with bullying and social isolation, and also, like I said, the tendency to hide their autistic characteristics and you know try to make themselves feel more that they belonged. So together, these two studies really indicated some implications to us for inclusion so with more bullying and higher levels of masking in mainstream school this seems to be at odds with the goal of inclusion to sort of achieve social justice and to accept and celebrate diversity. So you're really getting a rich picture of how difficult it is for some of these children and young people with autism in mainstream settings and the 
negative experiences that they're having. And you went on to explore this further, didn't you? What else did you find out? Uh, arising from those qualitative studies, we decided to form two hypotheses, essentially, and one that was that children in schools with high exposure to autism and a sort of inclusive school ethos will reduce their uncertainty about difference and then show more positive attitudes towards their autistic peers and reduce their tolerance to bullying. And the second hypothesis being that children who increase their personal contact will also increase their understanding and acceptance of difference and, and show more sort of positive attitudes as a result. So we collected data from over 1,000 typically developing year seven students from six mainstream secondary schools in the southeast of England. And half of these attended schools with centres for autism. And also they provided more assemblies and uh, PSHE, you know, personal social health education about autism and diversity. And the other half attended sort of regular mainstream schools without a centre. So students answered questionnaires about their attitudes in response to a bullying scenario and also their attitudes towards people on the autistic spectrum in general. And the results showed that um, in the schools with a centre for autism, in response to the bullying scenario, there was a significant increase in pro-social emotions, so things like anger, sympathy, sadness and shame, and a decrease in their antisocial emotions, so pride, excitement, amusement and satisfaction, compared to those um, in the centre. And we also measured the time spent with autistic people and found that when a child increases their personal exposure to autistic people, their attitudes towards them become more positive and vice versa. So overall, we concluded that school exposure through the kind of inclusion model um, in the, these sort of centre schools leads to greater emotional response towards bullying. And that personal contact leads to a more positive thoughts about autistic individuals. So it really indicates the need for both types of exposure. So to make the jump here, people who attend schools with a positive autism friendly environment are less likely to tolerate bullying if they were to witness it in their school. Yes, exactly. So, you know, it's very much based on the idea that they are responding as a bystander and, and various research has previously shown the influences of bystander intentions. So, you know, it's not just looking at the attitudes of people who have been a bully or who've been a target of bullying. There's quite a lot of data to show that these bystander attitudes um, have a direct influence on their intended behaviours in that particular bullying scenario. Another of your studies looked at using music as the social cohesion tool between neurotypical and children with autism. Can you tell us about that? Yes, we used a, a very sort of similar scenario, a bullying scenario. And this was based around um, an 11-week music programme focusing on social interaction. So uh, things like clapping games, call and response, singing games, and also writing a Christmas carol together. So they had this sort of common goal, like the, the contact hypothesis mm -hmm. suggests. And there were 50 children in year six so aged about 10 to 11, and they were asked about their attitudes towards an autistic peer being socially excluded both before and after the intervention. And then the participants were assigned to one of two groups, so either high contact with autistic peers throughout the music programme or no contact with autistic peers. Um, and the results showed that 
in response to the story of social exclusion of an autistic child, the children in the high contact group showed greater increase in these pro-social emotions again, a significant difference compared to the control group. Um, and in addition to that, there was an effect on the autistic pupils who participated as well, who showed a 20% decrease in their tendency to be a victim. So, um, so both of these studies really succeeded in uh, increasing our understanding of how different kinds of contact be affecting the attitudes of neurotypical children towards their autistic peers. So that change in the children with autism really suggests that there's a mutual impact of spending time together to help improve attitudes on both sides. So yes, it was a very small sample of autistic children within the intervention. So we can't be 100% sure that it was the intervention that was impacting on their decrease in tendency to be a victim. Um, But it is an interesting result. And because it is such a a high effect size, 20 percent, as a pilot study, it's something that you would want to take further and try to see if this could be generalised in other samples as well. And where would you like to go next with this research? Yeah, so my research has really give us ways to understand improving the understanding of attitudes um, towards autistic peers. So my intention is to really try to take this one step further. I think it's so important to look into this kind of area because so much research in autism focuses on specific deficits and how to fix them rather than looking at ways to increase quality of life and well-being for people on the autistic spectrum. And I think we really need to examine our own assumptions of normality and impairment and use research to meet the priorities of the autistic community. So one of which is to identify effective environments, so environments to help them achieve their best educational um, goals or social and life skills. Mm. So there was actually a recent review of autism awareness interventions published earlier this this year. And this found evidence of the effectiveness of certain interventions in improving knowledge and reducing stigma. So, for example, providing children with both descriptive and explanatory information about autism. But the only kind of intervention that improved behavioural intentions was those that had this prolonged contact between typically developing and um, autistic students. The the review also warned such big variations in quality and sample sizes and durations of interventions. It's quite difficult to form proper conclusions. So my intention is to implement a more rigorous design, comparing contact and non-contact interventions and different kinds of delivery methods, you know, appropriate control, the variables and so on, to try to identify the most effective way to increase this acceptance and understanding. So the hypothesis in its infancy is that if we encourage neurotypical children to spend more time with children with a diagnosis of autism and we increase their understanding of this then we will create some of those more high quality relationships that children with autism are looking for that we spoke about at the beginning. Yes definitely yeah I think that that would be the um, the, the ultimate goal. And so for those people who are listening who work with children with autism what advice can you give them about how they can support relationships for these children? Well, the Autism Education Trust recently published some guidance providing some principles of good autism practice. And these are grounded in policy and research. And all of these principles are really useful for working towards um, better outcomes for autistic children. And in particular, with regard to friendships, they recommend, you know, an ethos and environment that fosters social inclusion and um, developing different ways to communicate and positive relationships and so on. And there are a number of interventions that are specific 
specifically to uh, designed to improve social outcomes for children on the autistic spectrum. Skirts approach, for example, which supports the child's social communication, um, but also focuses on emotion regulation, um, such as you know their ability to to deal with everyday stresses. And this has been found to improve social communication and emotional behaviour, and has been found to be um, quite successful. And there are also other sort of social skills interventions and peer training interventions that provide typically developing peers with strategies for facilitating play with autistic children, things like peer networks, circle of friends, buddy systems, etc. Um, and these are widely supported to be highly effective in improving social skills. However, these interventions assume that it's the autistic child who needs to be fixed or normalised in my mind. Um, and rather than the emphasis being on trying to fix these particular deficits, I think that the emphasis needs to be more on removing barriers and adapting the environment to reduce anxiety or sensory overload for children on the autistic spectrum. So there's this sort of growing neurodiversity movement that stresses that everyone has a, a different mind and a different way of being um, and that we shouldn't suppress these differences but instead accept them and support them. So you know without ignoring the fact um, that there are challenges my intention is to highlight the important role of peers not to take responsibility for their development uh, you know the development of their autistic peer social skills like in peer training but instead to be encouraged to really understand and accept the difference so you know children need to be helped to understand that human variability is normal mm. so um, an, an approach that really combines an inclusive school ethos and personal exposure through these structured group activities um, is really needed, I think, to reduce the stigma and sort of improve their attitudes towards autism. So really changing the ethos in schools and working to change perceptions and society's views of people with autism is one of the key areas where we can have an impact. Yes, definitely. I think that really there is quite a lot of thought in many schools going into, you know, things like sensory issues, like lighting and noise, and also adapting the curriculum to meet the needs of um, pupils. But also, I think there is definitely room for providing information to people that explains autism and other conditions, and also trying to, like I say, find these opportunities for structured positive contact and this might be through music or PE or art but should really give opportunities for pupils to interact with each other you know alongside their peers with different needs and really try to sort of find ways to facilitate these common goals you know in a supportive environment so you know in my intervention we we, we used singing and music making but other schools that I've spoken to have achieved this through sports clubs and lego or sci-fi clubs at lunchtime for example so yeah my message would be you know really that these small changes if supported properly and you know with understanding for individual challenges can really lead to an increase in quality of life for autistic children in mainstream schools. It's such an important and powerful message to finish on. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Anna. Oh, thanks, Sarah. Thanks very much for having me on. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And thank you for listening. You can find out more about Anna's work in the podcast description. If you like this episode, then please do subscribe and you can follow us on Twitter at emcurriculum. You can email us at theemotionalcurriculum at gmail.com. See you soon.